Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pass gas. I'll see you there. Pass gas podcast. It's about cars. It's not about ports. Hey guys, welcome to the Past Gas Podcast. If you like Past Gas, please help us grow by giving us a good rating and a nice review on the podcast platform of your choice. It'll really help us out, and I really appreciate that. So thank you. All right, now for the show. The year is 1944. A date which will live in infamy. After a successful beach landing at Normandy, Allied forces are making headway, reclaiming France from the entrenched German forces, with the intent to push the Jerrys back to their home country and finish the fight. But Europe is a large place. The task of moving troops over vast swaths of land requires significant planning and communication. But how do you communicate when a country's infrastructure has been destroyed? It's not like you can build telegram lines everywhere you go. You need a dependable solution. One that won't draw a lot of unwanted attention. Something that can outrun the enemy, if it does. Turns out all you need is a man and a motorcycle. Welcome to Past Gas. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Whoa. Dude, a man Dude, in a motorcycle. I thought, I thought you were talking about choppers, and I was right. <laughs> <laughs> you guys ever read that book, A Mouse on a Motorcycle? Uh, yeah, actually. Dude, you guys always do this. You, what? You ruin the surprise. Uh, <laughs> what? You can, it's not a surprise when it's like in the ether. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, I mentioned a book I read as a child. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Today's uh, we are not starting a series on a mouse in the motorcycle. Uh, we are talking about the most notorious motorcycle club in the world, the Hell's Angels. Hell yeah! Whoa. I do not know how long this series is going to be, but uh, we're going to try to separate fact from fiction. We're going to figure out what the heck is really going on with these guys. Uh, the Hell's Angels have been around since 1948 and have been a pop culture mainstay pretty much ever since. Um, our goal with this series, uh, we're going to try to be as impartial as possible and give you guys the most accurate picture of the Angels and their rivals around the U.S. That's right. We won't just be covering the Hells Angels, but every major outlaw motorcycle club out there. I forgot to introduce myself. I am Nolan Sykes, joined as always by the very handsome James Pumphrey. Yeah. And Joe Weber. Uh, wink, wink. <laughs> It's not how, catching how you on. Got... It's <laughs> yeah. I'm very excited to start the series. I think uh, I, I think as soon as we we pitch the idea in our in our little podcast Slack, it just immediately lit up with everyone saying, "Hell yeah, this is gonna be awesome." Yeah, um, I think like everyone has sort of heard of the Hell's Angels, but there's a lot of mystery, and I'm not I'm not really sure who they are. Are they like a company? Are they like actual <laughs> bad guys? Like, like are they lamer than they want to be, or are they worse than they want to be? You know what I mean. <laughs> so, like, I don't know if they're like more tough guy than they claim, or if they're more just kind of lame old businessman than they claim. Because I think like a lot of Harley riders, I associate with just like old men. You know, I think as we'll see, it's a very it's a very complicated subject to tackle. Because I think there are a lot of aspects on both sides of what you're talking about, James. Um, but as we'll see in episode two, there are definitely some very nefarious and evil elements within. But at the same time, the media uh, has also defamed motorcycle clubs. Um, 
and caused a lot of misinformation. So we're going to try to figure it all out. This episode, you can think of it more as like a prologue to everything, to the to the story of the, the Hells Angels, because to really understand the Hells Angels, you have to understand the history of motorcycle clubs in the U.S. Um, and to do that, you need to understand the history of motorcycles. It's funny that you mentioned prologue, Nolan, because my cousin just became a professional um, lumberjack. And he uh-huh. just released he just released his first his first prologue. Wow. <laughs> you know, it was a really big moment for the family. I, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, man. He's really um, good. Yeah, I'm glad they're still. Um, yeah. They're neck, still... neck face designed it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that guy's cool. All right. So the story of motorcycle clubs in the U.S. begins with the invention of motorcycles. And the story of the motorcycle begins with bicycles. That means our show, however briefly, must become a bicycle podcast. Boo. No, bicycles are cool. I just got into, I'm getting into bikes. What was that immediate turnaround? <laughs> yeah, I just regretted it because I'm, I'm looking at my bike and I love it. I think bicycles, I, I think a lot of car guys are into bicycles. I don't think it's a stretch because it's like you look at them on the internet. You're like, I want this one. Then you find it on Facebook Marketplace and you drive to Bakersfield to buy it. Mm-hmm. And then you just, it's gear. It's like car people love gear and bike people love gear. And it's just like, oh yeah, I'm going to get some new s- spindles. I got Did new you pedals. buy your bike in Bakersfield? Yeah. Wasn't expecting that. But anyway, yeah, I mean, like my first experiences with like, you know, mobility were on my Huffy rocket bicycle as a kid. And I just I've I've always loved bikes. Um, I haven't really ridden in a while. When I was a kid, my friend John had a bike with a plastic shell in the shape of a like a motorcycle. Oh, yeah. I remember those. Yeah. Do you like ride downhill and all that? He uh, well, no, he went downstairs. We made him go downstairs in it. <laughs> what were those called, Joe? You're thinking of motorcycles. Motorcycles? Is that what they were called? Mm-hmm. I didn't is, know they had a name. How is yeah. that not my Instagram handle? <laughs> it should be, man. <laughs> <laughs> motorcycles. Yeah, what the hell? That's Dude, amazing. you gotta switch it right now before anyone takes it. Nah, I like mine right now, but uh, <laughs> that is amazing. I love this bike podcast now. Let's just keep yeah. going with this. Dude, I love All right, it. Let's yeah. keep going with it. This let's is go. uh, Me too. Uh, the number one bicycling podcast. This is the number one motorcycles podcast yeah. on <laughs> Apple. <laughs> uh, okay. So, yeah, let's do it. Uh, the history of bicycles is surprisingly difficult to decipher, as there are many people who claim to have invented it. According to the International Bicycle Fund website, The first person credited with building a human-powered land vehicle is Italian inventor, sorry, Giovanni Fontana in 1418. Damn, Giovanni Fontana sounds like he owns a casino. (laughs) So Fontana's invention uh, looked nothing like the bicycle we know today. It had four wheels, so big difference. (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, Four wheels in (laughs) similar, similar configuration to like a wheelchair. Uh, and move forward when the rider pulled down on a rope that was wrapped around a pulley above the chair. And then that rope went down to this axle below the chair with gears on either side. And those gears uh, turned the, the wheels, okay, which achieved motion. So yeah. it's like one of those like rope climbing machines at the gym, but it had uh-huh. wheels on it. Yeah, or like in a, I, I was in the theater when I was a, when I was a mm-hmm. youngster, like mm-hmm. opening the um, curtains, yeah, surprisingly heavy. Those yeah. curtains. <laughs> but in contrast to Fontana's four-wheeled uh, rope machine, the origin of the two-wheeled vehicle is much harder to pin down. For over one hundred years, countries have jockeyed to retroactively be considered the creator of the bicycle. Hey, turns out, turns out we was just looking through uh, some old uh, documents, and uh, <laughs> we invented it before you. Hey, it looks did. like you smudged the date a little bit on this paper. <laughs> what is that? You guys are doing bits, but that's exactly how it went down. Yeah. <laughs> I also I want to point out that uh, Giovanni uh, Fantana is listed as an inventor slash magician. <laughs> 
And all yeah. of his... Do you guys know any magicians? They're like the smartest people in the world. Isn't yeah. Cordova a, a, a magician? No. No? Oh, he <laughs> seems like he would be. <laughs> so smart. Our boy, uh, Matty Cordova, who, Joe, you did, a, you did a country music LP with him. Yeah, check it out. Uh, SoundCloud.com slash Brooks Rivers Music. It's a it's a parody, parody country uh, album, and it, I think it's pretty good. In the years before World War One, European industrial nations wanted to flaunt their heritage by forging antique bicycle designs. France successfully laid claim to the bicycle for nearly ninety years with a non-steerable bi- bicycle design. Uh, I wasn't able to find more info on that story. But from what I can tell, it sounds like the French, like you guys did in your bit, found, air quotes, a drawing and then claimed it was way older than it was. And it was accepted uh, in bicycle historian circles for a while. But then it was debunked in 1976 by bicycle historian Jacques Soray. Um, so, Damn. yeah, Jacques, Jacques Taken Soray. Taken down put by in, a countryman. That's right. He's like, this This is not true. I cannot I live like this. this. Yeah. <laughs> I could not live with the lie. I uh, also love that when we go back this far in history, there's just room for the biggest innovations. Like the idea of a non-steerable bicycle. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> like yeah. they made it to me. I always assumed like the first bicycle was steerable. That would be one of the boxes I wanted to tick with the prototype. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's like, yes, we can go in a straight line. But it's what like we... that's what that's how I feel about rap in the eighties. Like I feel like it could have been a rapper, as long as I can rap like rhyme hat with rat. Like I oh could have been God. a rapper in they the eighties. They used up all the good words. I mean, because like if you look at a bicycle, <laughs> if you look at a bicycle, like it's a two. Like the steering uh, mechanism is one cylinder inside of another cylinder. Right. So yeah. like. They made these things for a while before being like, huh, I bet we could put a cylinder inside of another cylinder and that would allow it to turn. And the wheels, huh. So if it wasn't the French who invented the bike, then who was it? Well, Italy wanted to turn being the special bike boys. (laughs) Many online sources attribute a 1493 drawing of a primitive bicycle to famed inventor Leonardo da Vinci. The goat. Yeah. Which supposedly surfaced in 1974. How convenient. During the restoration of his Codex Atlanticus, a 12-volume notebook of da Vinci's drawings, this discovery was of great importance to Italy. It meant that they could lay claim to the invention of the bicycle. Uh... Now, the appeal of a da Vinci bike is hard to deny. He is one of Italy's greatest historical figures. Um, The restoration of the Codex was carried out with consent from Pope Paul VI back in 1961 with the stipulation that monks from a monastery in Grotta Ferretta be the ones to do it. The restoration would take about 10 years, and trouble began in 1967 with the discovery of a separate da Vinci drawing depicting, quote, chain wheels with chains for lifting buckets with counterweights for wells or the like. That doesn't sound like a bike. No, but this is very important because the contraption was very similar to the chain mechanism used to power modern bicycles, and people saw the resemblance right away. Members of the press and the Vatican amplified the discovery of da Vinci's, quote, bicycle-like chain. According to an article on cyclepublishing.com, someone must have seen this and forged a drawing of a bicycle with that same chain mechanism uh, and put it in the Codex Atlanticus. One of those lying monks. After years of scholarly debate on the subject, most bicycle history experts agree that da Vinci did not invent the bicycle. So if Italy cannot claim it, who can? Well, a guy named Carl. <laughs> nice. You got you just... me on the edge of my seat, man. <laughs> I want to know who this Carl guy is. Carl von Drace was a German inventor active in the early 1800s. 
most likely inspired by the French hobby horse, you know, one of those sticks that you ride around mm-hmm. with yeah. the horse head on it. Yeah, I uh, know, Nolan. I, yeah, okay. I know. I know. You're a big hobby horse guy, James? <laughs> I'm a hobby horsist. <laughs> that's, horse, that's your donut Horsist merch, is dude. the best word. <laughs> I'm a hobby horsist. horsist. <laughs> oh, have you guys seen the um, the buff horses shirts yet? No. No. Oh, f- oh shit. <laughs> Damn, yeah. that's really cool. Yeah. Oh my god. So yeah, that's keep amazing. You, if you're you're hearing their first reactions to seeing the Buff Horses T-shirt, so so you probably want to go join our mailing list so you can be the first to get your hands on one because they're coming to DonutMedia.com soon in our merch store. The level of detail in this <laughs> is amazing. It's incredible, dude. <laughs> oh my god. Holy shit, man. Okay, let's get back. Okay, so Carl von Dres, German inventor. Uh, yeah, so he's in, he was inspired by the hobby horse. He devised his own human-powered transport minus the plush horse head, okay? His mm-hmm. lauf machine or running machine consisted of a wooden frame, a padded seat, some handlebars for steering, and two large wheels. The rider sat with a slight bend in their legs, so they'd be they'd be able to push off the ground and propel themselves. <laughs> it's like one of those, like you see little kids have them now. Yeah. It's a, it's yeah. a bike without any pedals. Exactly. Uh, it's like la- a, a man-sized Lauf machine. Yeah. <laughs> the Lauf machine was capable of about five to six miles per hour. <laughs> Unless you're going down a big hill. Yeah, exactly. And Carl envisioned it for use by the post office and military couriers to communicate on the battlefield. Uh, to demonstrate the usefulness of a foot-powered sit-and-scoot, Carl organized an exhibition at the Luxembourg Gardens in Paris. Thousands of people showed up to the demonstration. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> and they even paid an entry fee to see the Lauf machine in action. <laughs> God, I would love to live back then. Yeah, <laughs> I know, right? Yo, dude, you hear about this? Like, this guy built a thing that you sit on and push. i'll pay to see that uh according to the morning chronicle a british newspaper of the time quote an immense concourse of spectators assembled yesterday at noon at luxembourg to witness the experiments with dry sienis the (laughs) other name for the lauf machine the crowd was so great that the experiments were but imperfectly made the machine however went quicker than a man at full speed and the conductors did not appear fatigued. <laughs> I think it's pronounced Dracien. Dracien, yeah. But that's how a British guy would have said it. He's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, totally. Dracienius. Dracienius. <laughs> think of the way that people dressed back then, too. A lot of layers <laughs> going on. Uh, yeah. And you're just like in the sun pushing this thing down the street. Yeah, you're wearing like tights and big old pantaloons and <laughs> like silk slippers, probably. And you have a like a pillow on your head with a huge feather coming out of it. <laughs> and you're just like doing doing 10 miles an hour down a street and you trip yeah, over someone's six, broom and six eat shit. Yeah. Yeah, dude, this is like a Hayabusa back then. They're like, it goes <laughs> six. So many like, people whoa. are dying on these fucking push bikes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I don't know, guys. Six, what's next? Seven? Eight, what are we going to make? Luftwaffe's that go 10? No way. <laughs> Is it Luftwaffe? Isn't that like a That's Nazi the German plane? Air Force, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Lauf machine. What are we making? Lauf machines that go 10? Man was not meant to go 10. <laughs> How long do yeah, you think dude. it took before someone did the first wheelie? Pro- can you do a wheelie when it's on... foot powered? No, I don't think so. I don't think you can do it on a Lauf machine. I bet Matt Hoffman could do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. All right. So the Lauf machine was a popular choice for people who wanted to ride around parks on a lazy afternoon. But the machine wasn't quite suited for the rough roads of 1800s Europe. Long trips were difficult on the foot-powered scooters, and riders opted to scoot on footpaths instead, where they were quickly deemed a nuisance and banned in many cities. Like Hmm. birds. Exactly. Dude, history, time is a flat circle, dude. Damn, dude. Uh, things only got worse for Carl and his Lauf machine. 
Uh, he had difficulty securing a patent as inventors in other countries improved on his design and got patents of their own. Carl was never able to capitalize on his scooter, but the Lauf machine was a huge stepping stone for the eventual rise of the bicycle, which Carl is considered the father of. 50 years later came the next big innovation in bicycles, the penny farthing. Now, the penny farthing has a weird name, but uh, I think a lot of you guys might know what these look like. It's one of those bicycles uh, that has the big old wheel in the front and the little wheel in the back, like Mr. Burns rode when he was a little kid on The Simpsons. Um, also very popular with hipsters. Yeah. Yeah, you might have seen him rolling around Williamsburg uh, with some dude wearing a bowler cap. Now, while these were innovative and much better transportation than the Lauf machine, they did require a considerable amount of agility and balance to mount and ride. You really um, had to hop up there. Those like pedals are like four feet in the air yeah it's crazy you need to like, you find like a picnic table or something to get up there. yeah <laughs> okay so penny farthings were really hard to get on i mean you guys have seen them they're those giant front wheeled bikes with the little tiny one in the back a much easier vehicle to pilot was the adult tricycle which appeared which <laughs> appeared about 10 years later in the 1880s these tricycles were pedal operated but turned the rear wheels with a belt connected to the pedals at first, these were primarily ridden by women who were unable to ride a penny farthing without getting their dresses stuck in the enormous wheel. But soon, the tricycle gained wide popularity because of its ease of use. Yeah, it's super chill. You just yeah. like sit there and move your legs. They you still know? make these. Yep. <laughs> Finally, in 1890, the bike as we know it launched into the mainstream. Metallurgy technology, or the mixing and pouring of metals, allowed for the greatest step forward in bike tech thus far, the chain and sprocket. Before both of these components had to be super thick and heavy to resist the strains put upon them, but now that metals could be stronger, lighter, and cheaper to produce, skinny chains could be put on bicycles in place of rubber or leather belts like those on the adult tricycle. Gears were also introduced, which meant that manufacturers could fine-tune how many turns of the pedals turned the rear wheel and also meant that the wheels could be the same size. This put the rider much closer to the ground <laughs> and thus made it safer to ride than the penny farthing. This was the birth of the safety bicycle or the bike as we know it today because obviously... The safety bicycle sounds like something that old people are prescribed by a doctor. <laughs> it's got Velcro on it for some reason. Yeah. So the, the safety bike revolutionized how civilization moved. At first, bikes were still pretty pricey, meaning that only rich people rode them. But like most technology, the cost went down and soon everyone could afford a bicycle. And they bought them. They bought them up. Inner-city bike travel exploded, mobilizing the workforce. Through the 1890s, demographics that were limited in their mobility now had freedom, and the group that benefited the most was the ladies. Safety bicycles could easily be ridden with a dress on, especially those with a dropped-top post. Uh, and that's why, that's like one of the main differences, even to this day, between men's and women's bike, a men's and a women's bikes. Like, you see that top post is like dropped down, even on yeah. mountain bikes where no one would ever wear a dress on them. Hey, speak for yourself, dude. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's basically the primary difference. Um, the bicycle gave women uh, independence they had never yet enjoyed. Legendary women's rights activist Susan B. Anthony had this to say about the safety bike. Let me tell you what I think of bicycling. I think it has done more to emancipate women than anything else in the world. I stand and rejoice every time I see a woman ride by on a wheel. It gives women a feeling of freedom and self-reliance. That is pretty cool, though. Yeah, For someone who doesn't have a lot of independence to finally be able to be mobile. Yeah, like Nolan mentioned earlier, when you're a kid and you get a bike and you're allowed to ride around your neighborhood, that's just such a game changer, you know? Yeah. How many bikes have you guys had stolen? Uh, when I was a kid, someone stole my bike. 
out of my front yard. And I, I went to private school. I went to Catholic school. So I had to wear a uniform. And I was just so embarrassed by my uniform because everyone in my neighborhood went to my old school. And this like neighborhood bully stole my bike. And my dad was driving me to school. And he, this kid was at the bus stop with my bike. And I was like wearing my uniform. And I didn't want like the bully to see me because he was like older than me too. And my dad was like, go get your bike. And I was like, nah, it's okay. He's like, dude, go get your bike. <laughs> and so like I got out of the car and like just went and didn't even say anything to ki- to the kid. I was just like, like, gra- like took my bike and like slowly like walked away and just like rode it home. And he but, didn't say anything? No, nah, he was like, all right, jigs up. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story. But first, a word from our sponsors. By the early 1900s, bicycle racing was the most popular sport in America, even beating out baseball for the top spot. Take that, Joe. Yeah, take that, Joe. Baseball. baseball. (laughs) Shut up, (laughs) you. It was hugely popular in Europe as well, with indoor velodrome tracks attracting the fastest riders in the world. Yeah, so those are like big, like banked tracks. I don't even think they're like an eighth of a, they're probably like a sixteenth of a mile long. But yeah, Mm -hmm. you could just pack tons of people in there. And just watch dudes go fast. Yeah, as they shit still do the it in place. the in the Olympics. Yeah. yeah, that's right. The first Tour de France was held in 1903, drawing thousands of spectators out of their homes and alongside the race route. Back in America, the riding was so fast that competitors were now limited by their strength and the laws of physics, mainly aerodynamics. So to go even faster, a bike manufacturer by the name of George Hendy devised tandem bicycles that allowed racers to achieve even greater speeds. But these bikes weren't ridden by competitors. What? That's right. Hendy's tandem bikes were piloted by two riders, accompanied by a small petrol engine on board. This bike would ride just ahead of the pack and allowed the racers to draft behind it. Huh. Shake and bake. Shake and bake. Hey, this sounds like a motorcycle. I thought this was a bike podcast. (laughs) The rider in the front would steer the pacer, as it was called, and the rider in the back would be constantly adjusting the fuel rate to the carburetor, and they would do their best to keep a constant speed in front of the cyclists. Unfortunately, their best often wasn't enough to keep the unreliable engines from breaking down mid-race which often caused problems like crashes for the racers and left spectators wanting their money back. There had to be a better way. Then racing enthusiast and tinker Oscar Hedstrom saw a need and started designing a single-cylinder engine of his own. His modified engines quickly gained a reputation for reliability, and soon George Hendy partnered with Hedstrom to produce pacers with the good engines on board. And with their partnership, a bike race was never ruined by a broke down pacer again. Hedstrom and Hendy soon realized that their motorized bicycle had a lot of use outside of the velodrome. Their partnership turned into a fully fledged company in 1901 when they formed the Indian Motorcycle Company in Springfield, Massachusetts. We've all heard of that. But much like the safety bicycle, early Indian motorcycles were another boom in transportation. Their motorbikes were much cheaper than cars of the time and attainable for much of the American populace. And when a bunch of people started buying something, they tend to hang out with people who buy the same stuff. And what do these groups of people call themselves? Hmm? I'll give you a hint. One Uh of my favorite sandwiches is named after it. Yep. We're talking about (laughs) clubs. Rubens. Oh, no. Clubs, Joe. (laughs) I really laid it out Uh. for you. Damn it. Uh, according to motorcycle historian William Delaney, the earliest known motorcycle club was the New York Motorcycle Club. They teamed up with the Alpha Motorcycle Club from Brooklyn and formed the Federation of American Motorcyclists, or FAM, in 1903. Family. Family. They acted as the motorcycle industry's first lobby, making efforts to improve road conditions for bikers, as well as organizing events like races. Meanwhile, in an attempt to prove the motorcycle's viability... Uh, Indian co-founder Oscar Hedstrom, Hedst- <laughs> Oscar Hedstrom, sorry, achieved a top speed of 56 miles per hour in 1903, grabbing the world land speed record. He followed that up with an endurance racing feat, winning a race from New York City to Springfield and back. Uh, a few years later, in 1906, 
Writers George Holden and Lewis Muller set off from San Francisco to New York City in search of the cross-country record for Indian. Twelve days into the journey, Holden crashed his bike, injuring himself and the motorcycle pretty badly. He had to abandon the trip and instead took a train for the remainder of the journey, acting as a, quote, spotter from Muller. Muller rode by himself for 19 more days, completing the trip in, in 31 and a half days. And remember, this is way before America had its interstate system. So Muller rode for thousands of miles on dirt roads and the Indian didn't break down. That's, that's pretty crazy. Imagine, and, and like you're on a bike uh, on a motorcycle with a single cylinder. It's got skinny tires, barely any suspension. Uh, I can't imagine the fuel mileage was super great either. That's a pretty yeah. awesome accomplishment. After Indian fired up production, other manufacturers followed in their path with names like Henderson, Ace, Excelsior, and Harley Davidson. Hell yeah! Harley Davidson was founded two years after Indian in 1903 by William Harley and the Davidson brothers, Arthur and Walter. William Harley had designed an engine for bicycles at just 21 years old and teamed up with Arthur Davidson to produce their own motorcycles. The company's first shop was a 10 by 15 foot shed somewhere in the Milwaukee woods. In four years, the growing company opened up a proper factory inside Milwaukee on Juneau Avenue, where the company is still headquartered today. Joe, do you know where, where any of this is at? Yeah, I've been to the Milwaukee or the Harley Davidson Museum. Um, it's a little bit like south of downtown. I want to go to Milwaukee. Yeah, I think you would love yeah. it. It's it's got it's on par with Pittsburgh, and you love Pits- oh, Pittsburgh. Oh, I do love right? Pittsburgh. I really love <laughs> yeah. Pittsburgh. Yeah. That same year, uh, Indian introduced their first V-twin racing engine. As the name implies, uh, this engine uses two pistons instead of just one to make its power, with the cylinders arranged in a V shape. These the the sound these things make is unmistakable. You can you know there's a guy on a Harley that rides by on a V-twin every every day, and it's like there he goes. Uh, In 1907. Indian made a consumer version of this racing engine and unleashed it on the public, uh, which made the 633cc engine the first V-twin on the American market. That's bigger than I thought it would be. I know, right? Yeah, that's pretty big. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's like a, a K car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Basically, yeah. Now, I mean, imagine that. Like Again, like these old bi- old motorcycles with like really small frames, but then you have like, an engine that is modern size still. Yeah. These things ripped. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like definitely like it's like part of a technology is way ahead of the rest of the technology. Oh yeah. Like I'm oh, sure yeah. the brakes on these things were um Her- yep, horrendous. Ju- yeah, just like they were suggestive. <laughs> <laughs> Indian continued to push the limits of engine size, eventually building a 1000cc motor for a bike that they called the power plus jeez yeah dude <laughs> and when you have an engine with a name like that it's only natural that you take it racing that is insane <laughs> much like the velodrome racers the first pacer motorcycle was designed to assist motorcycles were a perfect match for banked oval racing but these bikes wouldn't be raced indoors over in europe the pioneers of motorcycle racing would be right here in the south bay of Los Angeles, baby, Playa del Rey. The Los Angeles Motordrome was built in 1910 from 2 million square feet of lumber with 30 tons of nails holding the track together. Oh my, nails? Yeah, yeah. dude. <laughs> uh, oh, that sounds so dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> the layout was not an oval, but a continuous circle a mile long, complete with banking all the way around. The track held 12,000 spectators and was located at the present-day intersection of Jefferson and Culver. I know exactly where that is. Um, that's crazy. I would love it if that was still there, dude. I know, dude. Auto and motorcycle races were regularly held there for three years until a fire severely damaged the track, causing it to shut down. But Motordrome, or Pipan, as it was known, wouldn't be LA's only motorcycle track. In 1919, a 1.25-mile oval was built where the Beverly Wilshire Hotel now stands in Beverly Hills. 
The long straights and high banks allowed the Indian and Harley riders to reach speeds never before possible on two wheels. The grandstands were filled with the roar of primitive V-twins howling down the front straight in excess of 100 miles an hour. <laughs> Can you imagine? This is 1919. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, just a bicycle. Yeah. With, with like it's so cool. With, like, a solid... They like, probably didn't have any suspension on them. Remember when we went to... Uh, What's his name's garage in Beverly Hills, and he had that mm-hmm. that bike that raced on it, and it was yeah, like Bruce Meyer, yeah, Bruce yeah, Meyer's Bruce garage, Meyer. yeah, and that's one of those bikes that was raced here. It's it's just amazing yeah, to that, imagine that that thing seems so rickety. Like I would not <laughs> s- sit on that thing. In 1923, the track was dismantled in favor of development, which frankly was probably a good idea because it sounds dangerous and stupid. Crashing on one of these courses was usually fatal. The high speeds did not mix well with the limited safety of the time. Riders wore leather helmets and wool vests, which wasn't enough, (laughs) obviously, to protect you from getting impaled by splinters sticking out of the rough cut two by four studs that made up the racetrack. Unfortunately, this was a common occurrence at motordromes, but it wasn't just the riders who put themselves at risk. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, one race at a motordrome in Newark, New Jersey, resulted in the death of four to six spectators when rider Eddie Hasha got tangled up with another rider and lost control of his bike, sliding into the crowd. Why don't they know specifically what, how many people died? Like That's yeah. an easy thing to count. <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, four. There might be two more people over there, but let's Dude, just... why don't you just go over there and count? I don't Please know, Please just go and count. Unions are new union rules. I can only count and give you an, uh, an approximation. If you want an exact number, then you're going to have to talk to my rep. If you guys want to see these bikes in action, uh, there's some really great like vintage footage of these racetracks. And like the banking is so high. I think like it's even more than like Daytona is. Motodrome racing represented the beginning of organized motorsport in America, mirroring the rise of velodrome bicycle racing just a few decades prior. But the racing also brought about another proud tradition, motorsports photography. The most lauded pioneer of this niche is a man named Ashley Franklin Van Order, or A.F. Van Order. That's a cool name. Yeah. A.F. was an amateur racer himself, but was so obsessed with racing that he moved his family from Illinois to California so he could race year-round. But his racing dreams were cut short when he was injured in a crash in the 1910s. After the tumble, his wife told him that if he, if you ever race again, I'm leaving. <laughs> so Van Order traded one expensive hobby for another, investing in a large format glass plate camera. Van Order set his rig up trackside and captured some of the best shots of the era, preserving the raw intensity of that time. But AF didn't limit himself. He would hitch rides in cars and on bikes to get rolling shots of competitors. Some of our favorite motorsport photographers and our friends like Larry Chen, OAF Von Order, some gratitude for getting race photography going over 100 years ago. I think it's yeah, safe his- to say that this guy was influential AF. Oh. <laughs> You're nice. out of order, dude. <laughs> Van Order. Lock me up, dude. Lock me up and throw away the key. <laughs> yeah. Uh it's a little harder to find some of his shots, but Google has a few of them, and it's, it's, it's really cool. I want to give you guys an idea of how fast motorcycles were advancing at this time. If you remember Irwin Cannonball Baker from our Cannonball Run two-parter a few uh, weeks ago, uh, he set many transcontinental records on the back of an Indian motorcycle. In 1914, he rode from San Diego to Savannah, Georgia, in a record 11 days, 12 hours, and 10 minutes beating Lewis Muller's record by 20 days. Wow. Yeah. Things were going great for the motorcycle. Life was relatively peaceful. That was until April 1917, when America entered World War I, bringing motorcycles with them. The U.S. Army had learned about the motorcycle's practicality in battle firsthand a year before, thanks to a Mexican revolutionary named Pancho Villa. Uh, You might have heard that name before. Francisco Pancho Villa was born in 1878 in the Mexican state of Durango. The son of sharecroppers, Pancho took over the family farm when his father died. 
Poncho was 15 years old. Poncho's family did not own the land that they were farming. Like I said, they were sharecroppers. In this arrangement, the tenants worked the land, producing food for themselves to sell, but often had to give up a large portion of their output to the landowner in exchange for rent. One day, Poncho came home from the fields to find his family's landowner attempting to rape Poncho's 12-year-old sister. Poncho, who was 16 at the time, grabbed a revolver and shot the man dead. Uh, after that, he said, screw this, I'm going to go to the mountains. Uh, and over the years, Poncho assembled a merry gang of bandits who got really good at robbing rich people. Poncho's gang would often give a portion of their spoils to the poor, which gave Poncho a Robin Hood-esque mystique. Uh, and his skills made him a very valuable asset for rebellion. In 1910, Villa joined forces with revolutionary Francisco Madero. Uh, Mexico's president at the time, Proferio Diaz, had abandoned Mexico's people, deciding instead to support his country's wealthy landowners, people like the man Villa had shot when he was 16. Sounds familiar. Don't care about the people, just trying to hook up your rich friends. That's Reminds right. Reminds me of a certain dick. <laughs> Madero, <laughs> Madero promised to return the country to the working man, and with Pancho's help, Madero's insurrection ousted Diaz but not before Pancho left the rebellion after having major disagreements with another fighter, Pascual Orozco Jr. Pancho left his life of crime and revolution, settling down with his new bride, but it wasn't long before trouble started brewing in Mexico once again. Madero was president now, but not everyone was happy about it. Pascual Orozco, the, uh, the guy that Pancho had fought alongside, felt he deserved a spot in the new government and formed his own rebellion movement against it. Feeling a duty to the man he had fought alongside, Pancho chose to fight on Madero's side, working with General uh, <laughs> Victoriano Huerta to destroy Orozco's movement. Things were great until Huerta betrayed Pancho Villa, saying that Mexico's favorite freedom fighter had stolen a horse and sentenced Villa to death. Uh, Madero pardoned the execution, but still had Poncho locked up in prison, which he escaped six months later. There's a lot of and he backstabbing. escaped on a Harley Davidson motorcycle. <laughs> no. And that's where we're going to end today. No. <laughs> and while Poncho was in prison, Huerta went from being Madero's bro to not being his bro. In February of 1913, Huerta led a coup against Madero and seized the presidency. Once free, Pancho Villa allied himself with a guy named Venustiano Carranza and fought against Huerta's government, eventually freeing the state of Chihuahua. But wouldn't you know it? A cycle of chaos continued as Carranza and Villa split up, fighting amongst themselves in a vicious civil war. And that's when the U.S. came in. President We're here to save you. <laughs> yeah, we're here. Hey, guys, stop, stop messing around. <laughs> President Woodrow Wilson decided to support Carranza in the fight, which put Villa at an obvious disadvantage. His militia's supplies were running low, and he needed an excuse to retaliate against President Wilson. On March 9, 1916, Villa attacked the small town of Columbus, New Mexico, killing 19 Americans and burning the place to the ground. But, but this would only be a Pyrrhic victory for Villa. His scouts had vastly underestimated the amount of U.S. Army personnel nearby, somehow missing the 340 soldiers that were stationed in Columbus. Villa lost over 100 men in the battle, and his troubles were only beginning. President Wilson wanted revenge and tasked General John J. Blackjack Pershing to pursue and eliminate Pancho Villa. Pershing's combat experience was not the reason he was chosen for this expedition, but his skills as a diplomat. The army was going to need these since they planned on pursuing Villa in Mexico, and you can't exactly do that without negotiating with the Mexican government. At first, President Carranza denied the army and told them that he would use his own forces to capture Villa. After I only assume were some aggressive counter negotiations, uh, Carranza allowed U.S. troops into Mexico. With permission to chase secured, Pershing set about the monumental task of organizing over 6,000 troops to look for one man in the vast Mexican countryside. Most of the troops in Pershing's expedition were either cavalry or artillery, which were mobile, um, 
but extensively relied on horses to get around. Horses needed to be fed and rested, which is hard to do when your supply line is hampered by bad roads or a lack of any roads at all. Pershing needed something a little more nimble. So, he got himself some Harleys. The Full motorcycle, baby. Full circle. The motorcycle was a great tool for communication. Telegraph lines in Mexico were regularly messed with by the locals, which made communication between Pershing's formations difficult. But a motorcycle didn't need a line to operate, which made the two-wheeled machine a superior option for the job. Pershing's Harleys were the tip of the spear in the chase for Pancho Villa and proved the machine's military viability. Unfortunately for Pershing, though, Pancho was able to evade capture until he was assassinated in 1923 by unknown assailants who were most likely political rivals. Uh, yeah, so, like I said, uh, the army was like, holy crap, these things are useful. Turns out these are pretty sick. <laughs> we'll get back to more past gas, but right now, a word from our sponsors. After America entered World War I in 1917, Indian dove headfirst into wartime production, building over 50,000 motorcycles for the war effort. Their colleagues in Milwaukee, Harley-Davidson, followed suit, adding 20,000 bikes to the Army's stable. These bikes were often fitted with sidecars, complete with a bolted-on machine gun, and saw frontline yeah. Yeah, front front action just like... <laughs> Motorcycles of World War I also acted as field ambulances with stretchers instead of weapons. When they were being used in combat, motorcycles were once again vital in establishing communications between outposts. The motorcycle was now carrying out the courier role with ease, fulfilling the dream Carl von Dreis envisioned for his Laufmaschines so many years before. Why are motorcycles so much cooler than tricycles? Like, tricycles are way more stable. I think uh, motorcycles at speed are actually more stable, and they're definitely more nimble. Like you have so much less true. contact patch. So after World War I, advancements like transmissions, brakes, suspension, and more efficient engines meant that motorcycles got more expensive and were once again toys for the rich, much like when the safety bike first came onto the scene. According to A Brief History of Motorcycle Clubs by William Delaney, by the mid-1920s, the cost of a small Harley or Indian was around $275. That's $4,078.26 today. <laughs> a full-size, a big twin model was roughly $375. That's $5,561.26 today. And the price of a Model T Ford was about $545. That's $8,082.36. So that's a lot of money. When you compare it to a car, because you can only fit like one person on a freaking motorcycle and it's cold when you're on it. I think it's amazing that he had the foresight to know how much inflation was going to be in 2019. He's uh -huh. a historian. Like He's writing it from today. <laughs> oh, I thought well, it, James's voice made it seem like he was like living in the 20s. No, yeah, no, I know, but we're not going to redo it. He's just, he's really, he's, he talks like that because he's so interested in the 20s. He yeah. also, this is I, how people talked in the 1920s, so I'm going to talk like that. Yeah, he also wears vests, I'm assuming, and carries a pocket watch. <laughs> By this time, membership of the old Federation of American Motorcyclists had dwindled, and race organization was handled by a competition committee within a motorcycle manufacturer association called the Motorcycle and Allied Trades Association. In the same way that FAM represented riders, M and ADA represented motorcycle and motorcycle accessory producers. With FAM gone, the competition committee took racing seriously as it was an obvious way to get the public invested in the industry. According to AmericanMotorcyclist.com, the committee laid out a plan to get riders registered with M and ADA for just 50 cents. And as soon as they gained enough members, the association moved on to their next phase, which they hoped would create the strongest motorcycle lobby in American history. Oh, yeah. It took five years, but midway through 1924, the competition committee of the Motorcycle and Allied Trades Association had garnered over 10,000 members. This was large enough for the department to become its own organization, and they called it the American Motorcyclists Association, or AMA. 
bike publication Western Motorcyclist and Bicyclist proclaimed, quote, The slogan of the AMA will be, An organized minority can always defeat an unorganized majority. The motorcycle industry was growing and needed protection, not just for the riders, but the money being made hand over fist by the manufacturers. Existing AM and ATA members were, giving, were given AMA memberships as the organization worked on planning its first racing event, a 1,400-mile endurance race with the start and finish line in Cleveland. But the AMA wasn't just interested in rallies. They wanted to make motorcycle racing the biggest sport in the U.S. And they kind of did with the help of Harley-Davidson. Back in 1908, Walter Davidson had scored a perfect score for reliability at the Federation of American Motorcyclists endurance event and set a fuel economy record of 188.234 oh miles per gallon just three days later. Insane. Wow. Accomplishments like these quickly earned Harley Davidson a reputation for reliability and durability, which is one of the big reasons the Army leaned so heavily on them for bikes during World War I. But it wasn't all about reliability for Harley. Them Milwaukee boys like going fast, too. With their own uber-dominant V-twin engines such as the F-head and the 74-cubic-incher, the Harley Davidson racing team earned the nickname The Wrecking Crew. Hell yeah. This team raced in what is known as flat track racing. Competition took place on dirt ovals, of which the fastest way to get around was not to lean your bike, but to use the throttle to step out the rear end. Drifting. Yeah, you're basically drifting around the whole course, which yeah. is so sick. Um, these bikes didn't have a clutch or brakes. Uh, they sound very scary. And after World War I, racing picked back up again. And in the early 20s, saw a new tradition for the reunited Harley Wrecking Crew team. The Wrecking, Wrecking Crew member Ray Wyshar was given a piglet, and the team named it Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> they adopted Johnny as their mascot, and soon Johnny found himself getting the Harley Davidson experience firsthand. After each Wrecking Crew win, the victorious rider would plop Johnny on the gas <laughs> tank and bring him along for a victory lap. Fans in the press ate it up, and as the Wrecking Crew kept winning, Johnny the Pig kept riding. The, tra the tradition earned Harley Davidson motorcycles a new name. Hogs. <laughs> so good. Cops ride Harleys too. Yeah, it's true. And now nowadays the Harley owner group, Hog, it just everything fits together so well. Yeah, also Wild Hogs starring Tim Allen, Martin Yeah, that's Lawrence. where I thought it came from. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think... Uh, it was William H. Macy who coined the term. Yeah. <laughs> the motorcycle landscape was rich with small companies doing their best to bring the industry forward. In 1932, the AMA formed their first flat track division, Class A. This was reminiscent of Group B rally racing in that manufacturer teams were, were basically allowed to run whatever they wanted, and it usually came down to whoever spent the most money on their bike. Racing costs skyrocketed as a result, which wasn't optimal during a depression. The AMA established Clash C, which was aimed at amateur racers riding production bikes. The lower cost of entry made Class C the most popular class at the time. The motorcycle was still a popular form of transportation, but unfortunately, the Great Depression wiped most of the American companies out, except the two biggest players. We're talking Indian and Harley. People still race these bikes. Uh, there's a big event over, I think it's in Illinois. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a, it's a flat track event where guys ride these antique Harleys and Indians and they freaking get that rear end out, dude. It's really cool to see. Yeah. Flat track I'd racing, love to go to uh, sort of had a like resurgence in the past few years. Um, it's really, really scary. Really, really cool. We're used to seeing motor cross bikes, you know, they're like very light and small. Uh, and these are like these guys are racing big old honker heavy boys. Harley Davidson's dominance at the racetrack attracted a lot of fans and inspired the formation of clubs that exclusively rode hogs. One of these clubs originated in 1935 in the southwest Chicago suburb of McCook, 
a group of writing buddies led by one John Davis, uh, not to be confused with the John Davis of Garfield fame, uh, <laughs> loved doing long hauls on their Harleys and would frequent a bar off Route 66 called Matilda's. Given that these boys were from McCook, loved drinking and getting rowdy on their hogs, they called themselves the McCook Outlaws, later shortened to Outlaws MC. Of all the clubs we'll talk about in this series, the Outlaws can claim the longest continuous history uh, in motors, uh, of motorcycle clubs. According to William Delaney, the Outlaws had a relatively tame beginning, but as we'll see, their reputation would get much more violent as time passed and competition grew. But we're not there yet, because before motorcycle clubs could rise to prominence in the U.S., the world would once again be plunged into war. The United States entered World War II on December 11th, 1941, four days after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Before the attack even took place, the government knew that a global conflict on multiple continents meant that the military couldn't rely on volunteers alone. So Uncle Sam started drafting able-bodied men to fight. Over the course of the war, over 10 million Americans would be drafted into the armed forces. This included a lot of guys in motorcycle clubs and guys who would eventually be in motorcycle clubs. World War II was the motorcycle's biggest fight of its short life. Harley-Davidson alone produced 90,000 of their model WLA war fighting bikes, more bikes than they and Indian had produced for World War I combined. The WLA was similar to the WL model that civilians were used to riding, but different in key areas to make them ready for the battlefield. The first alteration was a modified front fender that opened up on the sides to reduce the possibility of the wheel getting jammed up with mud. The last thing a courier would want when riding through a hot zone is to get stopped by something as primordial as muck. Other environmental considerations included an oil filter that relied on regular oil baths to maintain its effectiveness. These filters were much better at filtering dusty air from dirt roads than the simpler replacement oil filters. One of the last major modifications was a coat of olive green paint. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the WLA served many similar roles to those of its ancestors in World War I. While the Germans tended to use motorcycles in combat roles, relaying messages was by far the most common task for American soldiers assigned to motorized cavalry. But another important job was to escort convoys. These long trains of military vehicles like tanks and uh, troop carriers would be led and flanked by motorcycle troops who were on the lookout for enemies and uh, enemy vehicles. Military police officers also patrolled European roads on motorcycles, clearing the way for these convoys. Uh, there's this great um, uh, old newsreel showing off the uh, military police guys training on their Harleys and they're just sending these bikes over <laughs> yeah. like dirt jumps and stuff. It's so amazing. <laughs> Combat in World War II was some of the most vicious our country had ever seen. The weapons of the time were more destructive than ever before and inflicted more pain and death than the human mind could possibly comprehend. Soldiers witnessed their friends taken from them before their very eyes. It wasn't uncommon for soldiers to borrow motorcycles and relieve stress and escape their harrowing reality on the battlefield. If a soldier couldn't find a bike, drinking was another option. To quote William Delaney's paper, quote, Some who didn't have experience with motorcycles during the war did manage to work their way up to master-level partiers, be they Army, Air Corps flight crews, seamen, infantrymen, airborne or Marines. The one constant thread that was sewn throughout their uniforms was the ubiquitous post-mission celebration. Soldiers were riding and drinking to escape the horrors of war, and their shared trauma followed them home when the war finally ended. Which is where we'll pick up next time on Past Gas. Yeah, dude. These guys just got, like, messed up over there. And then they come back and they're like, oh, what, I'm just supposed to be normal now? Yeah, right. Yeah, I know how to ride a motorcycle. I know how to ride a motorcycle, and I'm just not going to not ride it. Do you That's think right. they cha there's a little bit of, like, chasing that adrenaline high from war? Oh, for sure. That's what we'll see in our next episode. Um, it's all about the the adrenaline and the camaraderie. Yeah, uh, like, what does that do to your adrenal glands? Just be like, ugh. 
you know, it's not easy to reintegrate into civilian life after an experience like that, as we'll see. Um, yeah, I think it's it, it'll be fun. So please join us next week for the continuation of our series on the Hell's Angels and motorcycle history. Uh, I think this one was pr- we had to talk about bikes for a long time, but I, I, I really enjoyed researching this one. I think it's just going to get really good in the next next couple episodes. I hope so. Otherwise, uh, all that research was for naught. So we'll see. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for listening to Past Gas. As always, uh, we love doing this show. Uh, please follow my co-hosts on all their social media. You got Joe Weber at Joe G Weber over there. Hell yeah! Oh, make sure <laughs> to check out the check out the Brooks Rivers LP on SoundCloud. Check it out is very- my co-host Nolan J Sykes on all platforms. Whoa, thank you. Yeah, Nolan J Sykes. I just hit 100k on Instagram. Damn, dude, that's sick. Congrats, dude. I'm like stoked. Yeah, man. You're- I don't feel any different. I thought there'd be like a briefcase of money showing up in my front door. You're a tier three influencer now. Oh, dang. Tier three, <laughs> baby. Yeah, baby. And check out James Pumphrey on all social at James Pumphrey. Yeah, and make sure you follow Donut at Donut Media. That's the best way to keep track of all the crazy stuff we're doing. And let me tell you guys, we're not slowing down at all. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. You don't want to miss any of it. Uh, you're watch- If you're watching this on YouTube, uh, this is our special podcast-only channel. So go ahead and hit that subscribe button. It really helps us out. And uh, make sure you don't miss anything. Um, cool. 